Hi everybody, thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast for another week. Um, this week's special guest is Nancy Byman, who is one of the legends. Um, Byman's work um, travels throughout the sort of 80s, 90s, through the golden age of, of the American um, Renaissance movement, and working in studios like Amblin and Disney, um, and she has been one of the most gracious guests, both with her time on mic, um, which you'll hear in just a second, and uh, through email exchange that we've ever had on the podcast, and it's been it was an absolute delight to feature her on the show um it became quite apparent as we were having an email correspondence about what film to feature her for um that actually the best thing to do was just to let uh, nancy speak about her career and her wider sort of um, trajectory as you'll as you'll hear she's got lots of insight on everything from um you know studying at cal arts and and, and the sort of early days of animation as it was going through a renaissance through to digital animation, animation as performance. She's written books on that subject as well. Um, it's a real treasure and it was an absolute delight to take part in. This is one of those, um, God, I'm pleased we do this podcast moments as we sat there and got to listen to all her, her stories from, from behind the scenes. Also, being the consummate unprofessionals, uh, we just sort of started chatting um, and sort of forgot to do a formal intro. So, um, hello, uh, I'm Alex Sargent. Um, you're about to hear Chris Holiday, my co-host as well, if you've not heard him before. Um, he's the less good-looking one of the two of us. And everything kicks off with a conversation about Nancy's new book, How I Finally Got to Live a Cat's Life, which is out in all good bookshops now. Um, so please buy that. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, we might experiment with this format again sometime if you do. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. And do leave a review for the podcast. Um, tell us how great it was, please. It does help with our visibility. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the show. in lockdown and people were frightened especially the children a little boy whom i had as a former neighbor also missed my two cats so i started drawing cartoons for him then other friends asked to see them and some of them were sick various illnesses and i started drawing a few more just to cheer people up and in april of 2020 i started what i called my corona diary and uh -huh. I really thought it would only be one or two panels. It ran for two years. And it is being published on October 1st in a book called How I Finally Got to Live My Cat's Life. Do, we have, do you have any insights from having lived a cat's life? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is it. It's very nice. I wish we could share that with listeners. It's beautiful. People should Google it. It's um, really wonderful. Uh, a cartoon yeah, diary. A cartoon diary in every sense of the word. Okay. Yeah, wow. It's very cool. How, how many panels did you keep? I did. Over, I have 50 cartoons in here, plus three postage stamp designs of ridiculous postage stamps, including pandemic. It's called pandemic postage, mm, right, including right, COVID right. hair, pandemic pets and mask on, mask off and social distancing, which is two, <laughs> a date with two people on two stamps that are not even on the same page. <laughs> I decided I'd publish this myself. So the nice thing about it is. It's available worldwide on any online 
self-publishing. Any online bookseller will have this book in stock. It's got good distribution through the, through the publisher. October first, it's available. <clears throat> Great. So that's project one. What's project? What's what's po uh, post retirement project two? I have been asked to uh, do a blog on the Animation World Network. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. The very, the very first post goes up on October first. Okay. Okay. What will it what be, will about? be about? Oh, you'll have to read it and find out. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Nearly got there. Yeah. <laughs> there are two things about it that are different, and that's why they asked me to do it. Mm -hmm. First, it's going to be funny. <laughs> Second, I illustrate, because most of the events I described don't have photographic records. Mm -hmm. So I did drawings, including a caricature of me at the age of 17 and my father trying to figure out where Valencia, California is <laughs> on a huge atlas. My poor dad <laughs> was such a such an innocent man. <laughs> we didn't know anything about where this place was. <laughs> so the drawings, I, I will keep them funny. The stories will be comic. And I they really appreciated that when I was doing Facebook posts. So they asked, they said, You're why are you wasting your time there? Why don't you work for us? And I said, well, it's not it's a nice honor because it's wonderful uh, exposure. And and it's a joke to say that, but it really is. So, Nancy, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure for us to get to chat with you for a bit of time, and we'll try not to monopolise too much of it, but we've got lots of things we'd love to cover and, and, and talk about. Yeah. Um, I guess we can start at the beginning, shall we? You were just telling us a story there about your new book um, and how it, there's a drawing... No, sorry, from the new blog post you were just mentioning, and there's a drawing from when you were 17, um, and... It, it's a comic, it sounds like, in two senses of the word. It's a, it's a drawing and it's comedic. So I guess we could start by asking you sort of, you know, how did you get into um, your career? Was it through drawing? Was it through comedy? Have those two things always been linked? What kind of first caught your interest to sort of being, being a, a, an animator, quote unquote? I never actually wanted to be an animator. <laughs> okay. I wanted to be an artist, and that's a rather vague term. I've been drawing since I was a small child, as soon as I was handed a pencil, and that's fairly late bloomer. I started around five. That's late. The reason is our kindergarten had no toys. The school was rather poor. But I found this boring, so I started drawing things. There was literally nothing else to do. I started drawing and kept drawing because being one of the school geeks, it was one way out. I couldn't do sports. I was, you know, not one of the popular girls. That's true of most of us actually in animation. Mm. And <laughs> when I was in high school, I made a small film, discovered I enjoyed this. And due to a series of unlikely coincidences, I wound up in the first class of the character animation course at California Institute of the Arts. I had done a little study in New York previously with a man named Ray Setti, who had a company called Sunflower Films, and discovered I liked it. And the Cal Arts Connection came through a series of rather odd coincidences. But I got there, one of the last two students accepted to this first program and took one look around at what the guys were doing, because there were only three girls in the class and 20, I think 22 boys. And I realized I had to work extremely hard to catch up. I had never had any drawing classes to speak of. Really, the only training I had before CalArts, other than Ray Setti's animation course, was a sculpture class, which turned out to be very important. But 
I had no drawing training at all. Yeah. So I worked so hard, 10 pages every day in my sketchbook. And I copied a great many medical muscle illustrations out of a book called Artistic Anatomy by Dr. Paul Riker. And one point, John Musker grabbed my sketchbook out of my hands. I thought he was going to say, he's going to find something funny in there. He sees all these drawings of muscles. And he asked me, am I going to be a medical student or something? <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm working on my anatomy because I'm bad at it. And my attitude when I was a student was to concentrate on the things that I did badly. Because that's where I needed the most improvement. Mm. And by far the most atrocious experience I had in the first year was in design class with a teacher named William Moore. <laughs> And Mr. Moore was the only one of our professors who was not a Disney veteran. He taught at Chouinard Art Institute beginning from his graduation there in 1935. He was a famous design teacher. He was also a famous foul mouth. <laughs> and he taught the way you can't teach today. He would go up to an assignment on the wall and, well, a famous incident. He took out a cigarette lighter because he smoked in the classroom. And he burned 20 assignments off a wall without saying a word. And he told us that story because it did not happen at CalArts. It was at a school called Art Center. And he said the next week, every one of those assignments was done beautifully. And they had a little matchbook in the lower left-hand corner. Okay, so this is Bill Moore. Now, he comes in and he looks at the stuff on the wall and goes, who did this piece? Who did this crap? I did. <laughs> Terrible. He goes, that's the crit. He goes <laughs> up to the next one. Here's another one. This is everything you should not have done in this assignment. Who did it? I did. You did two of them. It's worse than the first one. I ran out of the room to the ladies' room, and I, I don't think I vomited. Let's just say I ran out there for something. But I came back hmm. because I knew he was right. <laughs> now, today, he would probably be fired for doing that. The point is, <laughs> yeah. when we were recently asked by uh, a writer who well, it was actually Tom Sito wrote me to say, who would you consider the best teacher at CalArts? This is for a survey. And he said, I said, Bill Moore. And he said, everybody said that no matter how rough he was. And he was rough, but he loosened up a little bit in the second year. And there were some very funny things that happened in that class that had nothing to do with the class. <laughs> and I do think that the design course that he taught was the very important one because it was the foundation of all the others. Without a good sense of design, you cannot design characters. You can't do decent life drawing. You cannot do layouts. You have no idea about what composition is in anything. And I find it amazing that I do not know of a single animation program that has a design course now. So if you can possibly speak with your superiors about that. <laughs> Chris, get on that. Yeah. Will you? <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to ask you that, that certainly within histories of, of Hollywood animation and, and I would say chronologies of, of the emergence or the waves of, of animation in Hollywood and, and particular the particular peaks and troughs of the art form, the way that often history is segmented into these various phases, especially with with regards to, to Disney um, history. Um, CalArts and the char character animation program at CalArts comes up a lot in terms of the people that emerged from that program and, and I, whether it's Andrew Stanton or whether it's Tim Burton or, or people that kind of went through that program. And you kind of, kind of answered it in some of the things that you were saying, but 
what 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 is it about that program? Is it exactly what you're saying in terms of the kinds of classes, obviously the the, the staff and the people kind of working, but also the specific things that they taught you that have seem seem to make this particular program quite important to let's say the renaissance of of Hollywood animation from the late 70s 80s onwards really a lot of the filmmakers that are celebrated today or artists and animators that a lot of I think our students would know can often have some kind of connection or can often be traced back to to this particular program so I just wondered in your sort of yeah uh, opinion of, of being there what what was it about that program that has perhaps yielded so much kind of incredible talent do you think well, first I must point out that CalArts has two animation programs and the older of the two is the experimental program which was headed at the time by Jules Engel right, an right. amazing an amazing man and a friend and among other graduates of that program, you have Henry Selleck. Wow. Who started wow. with our program and found it more, I guess he already had an undergraduate degree because Jules only taught a graduate program. Ellen Woodbury, who had an undergraduate degree and came to CalArts and went into Jules's program. And Jules's class was fascinating. I used to hang out there all the time. We were not encouraged to socialize. and I didn't see why not. It was more the try anything you want. And there were people doing incredible character animations. I remember Jules introducing me to Brenda Banks, who had already graduated, but was finishing up a film there. And she did caricatures of the Three Stooges as a three-headed dinosaur that were just brilliant, just brilliant. And Jules had them pinned on the wall. And I told her that they were brilliant. All she said was, thank you. That's the only exchange I've ever had with her, but superb draftsmanship. Uh, Kathy Rose, a famous dancer as well as uh, animator, was in that program. We've, we've become friends. I've always liked her work. So CalArts offered these two programs which did not interact with each other. The Disney program was intended specifically at the time to retrain the Disney yeah. artists, and it was yeah. never supposed to go more than, I think, four or five years and so when it became obvious the program was a success, I don't believe it is sponsored the same way anymore. But I have not been to the school since 1992, so I'm not the right person to ask how it is. <laughs> in addition, in the 70s, never forget that several other things were happening. Sheridan College had, the, I think, the world's first dedicated animation program in 1971 for character work. It's the same age as Jules' program. And it was set up by Bill Matthews, who died this year, another dear friend. I had no idea Bill was Canadian. As it is, he was a Disney veteran. He came up here and worked as one of the uh, originators of the Sheridan program. But Sheridan was a two-year school. And I was, actually, I was actually shown the brochure by our guidance counselor when I was considering going to school for animation. And was the original brochure. I wish we had it now. My parents look a look and said, oh no, that's only a two-year school. You have to go for four years. That was a very smart move. Even though Sheridan was a great school, it was, it was very important to have a degree. The third thing that's happening in 1975, the exact same year, of course, is happening in London at the Richard Williams studio. And he invited Ken Harris, great Warner Brothers animator, 
to come over and do the titles for the I think, Return of the Pink Panther. And they're still stunning today. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we saw that film as CalArts students, we thought there's hope for us. There's somebody wants to do this great animation. We can, it's not all bad out there. And Williams had his own school in his studio. He had Art Babbitt come over and teach a course, a brilliant teacher. And these three things are all happening, or four, I should say, if you take both Calitz programs, they're all happening at the same time. Hmm. Is, in, in that sense, then, is the 70s a kind of transitional moment between different generations? Because, again, kind of scholars are writing on, say, the history of Disney animation would consider the period between Walt Disney's death in the late 60s, even up to something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the late 80s, as a sort of middle years where animation is still... I mean, there's still incredible work but presumably kind of coming in this in the sense of or through figures like Bakshi and 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 a a different kind of of animation did they feel like a transition between one generation the golden age and whatever age we call the the 70s and 80s so definitely why the CalArts program was established it became a, a thing after the success of the film the Aristocats which was Disney's last storyboard that he okayed and of course he did not live to see the film completed and the studio originally was going to shut down the animation department at the end of that production and just because there weren't very many of the old timers left yeah the film did so well they said well we maybe we have to train more people let's let's do it they had a training program of course but they were talking more large scale yeah so trainees a real course just like the one that don graham taught in the 1930s in fact we got some of the pupils who were originally in Don Graham's classes, including Jack Hanna, the head of the program. He was a pug-faced guy who'd go around chewing gum and saying he was a college professor, but he ran the program well, I think. And Elmer Plummer, who was our life drawing teacher, was, I believe, also in those trainee sessions in the 1930s. I found some of the interviews and their names do appear on the transcripts. And Frank Thomas and Ellie Johnston came to visit and became friends as well. Wow. Um, no, they were very, very eager to help the students, particularly the girls. They right, had, right. The very right, first right. time I actually met them was when we had our first year screening in our classroom, which we had no, no access to a theater. So this is a 16 millimeter projector and people were sitting at the desks. And at the end of the screening, as they're leaving, Ollie Johnston turns back and behind his hand, he goes, stick with it. We need more women in this business. And I thought that was very nice of him. So Frank and Ollie were extremely kind to students. I'm not saying the others weren't, but Frank and Ollie took a special interest, which is why they wrote their book, of course. They didn't want all that knowledge to die with them. They thought it was worth saving. So CalArts was a continuation. I wouldn't call it a transition. It's a continuation. Right. It sounds like it's a bit of looking back and a bit of looking forward. They're, they're, they're trying to emulate some strategies and some things that worked in the 30s, but they're also, they're aware, you know, um, you know that, that the need for a better gender representation, that there's a new world out there, you know, we're in the 70s now, it's not the 30s. So there sounds like a little bit of what's the best about the old whilst thinking of, What's what's what the new will look like? I would say it wasn't exactly add mad more girls. Uh, it was 
I was aware that I was probably a token. Okay. So I worked extra hard, extra hard to do as well as I could. And by the way, I did very well in Bill Moore's class in the second year when I finally started to understand what he was talking about. <laughs> and I thought, how stupid. This is basic. This is so simple. It should have gotten through my head bone a long time ago. But Donald Graham said, you have to get 100,000 bad drawings out of you before you start doing some good ones. So that also mm. applies to bad designs. But this is a really interesting insight into the the kind of dynamics and the essentially the labor thinking about the way in which I think a lot of um, film and media studies kind of cultural theorists try to write women back into the history of these kinds of studios and, and doing research back in into the 30s when when I co-edited a book with a, a colleague on Snow White and talking about the sort of image of the 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 man in the white coat in relation to say the multiplane camera versus the labor of women inkers inkers and painters and and the labor dynamics that i guess even by the 70s are slightly shifting because you're talking about not being treated in a particular kind of way you are you are there because you are good and willing to learn and all this sort of stuff but i suppose one of the things i wanted to ask is you are also working let's say in the 1970s the fifth or the sixth thing is the arrival of the digital um or i just wondered to what extent going back to this point about the 70s being a transitional period or, as you say, more of a continuation, at the same time, there are moves towards a sort of more digitised or digitally mediated production. 70s is only 10 years or so before the arrival of the Disney's Caps technology. Obviously, Pixar are making shorts, as you said, in the early to mid-1980s that are very inspired by the digital, uh, very, very inspired by silent cinema, sorry. So I, I'd be interested to know what role kind of technology plays in this in this narrative before we get to your work at you know Amblin and Disney and so forth this period of were you aware of of the digital revolution or how did that kind of play out again in the in the classroom was that something that that you were cognizant of or was it something that came later and, and you were surprised by these pantomimic sort of silent cinema style Disney uh, sorry Pixar shorts well that's a, quite a question <laughs> Our technology it, yeah. in the 70s consisted of, we were so happy when we got a prototype for an Oxbury camera instead of the 1932 bicycle chain powered Disney camera that they shot the three little pigs up. I certainly hope that's in the Disney Family Museum. <laughs> yeah. We had no technology at all to speak of. We did get lion lamb video recorders in the and that was hot stuff back then. <laughs> I, I do have a computer background going back to that period simply because my father enjoyed building his own from kits. They could do that then. Wow. And, yeah, wow. Heath kit. They were good machines. And he taught himself basic and changed careers in the late 70s and became a uh, systems integrator at Bell Labs. He was originally a musician. Now, musicians apparently make very good programmers. Cartoonists don't. I had no skill from that at all. But I tried my very first digital animation on dad's camera, uh, dad's computer. I had to work one pixel at a time. It's about 1980. I animate, there's no graphic program on it. It's, it's purely uh, text. You have to understand we're going very far back. Mm-hmm. And I did, mm-hmm. after a whole day's work, I had three key poses of Donald Duck doing his famous hop and swinging his arm. And it actually animated yeah, I said it would never be popular. Jack Zander, the first boss I worked for uh, full-time, because I worked for Ralph Bakshi before that, Jack Zander claimed to have done the first animated, computer-animated short with key punch cards. 
in the 1960s and I saw it and it was quite good actually. It was pretty simple. It was a car going over a hill and the sun rising with a smiling face on it. But it had to be done with punch cards. If you can imagine a stack of punch cards the size of a chair or a table, like table behind me, that's mm -hmm. how much it took to make this simple scene. So again, it wasn't practical. Once the programs, once practical graphics programs were invented, the first computer animation I saw that really impressed me was actually by Chris Wedge. Oh, yes, yes. Some oh, yes, really yes. interesting things with this sort of squashy, blobby things. Very, very, very uh, fluid, not, not plastic looking like some of the others. And oh, I will jump it backwards a bit. When we first started at, the, at Cal Arts, this is 1975, we were invited to come to the Disney studio. This is the entire class. And we were taken into a room that was entirely filled with computers, floor to ceiling. These are enormous machines. And on a tiny screen, which is about the size of the Zoom image you're looking at now, maybe a little bigger, there was a red chair, very shiny on a blue floor. And they said, what do you suppose the chair is made of? And some of the guys said, well, plastic, no, metal, no. And they go, it doesn't exist. This is on a computer. We made this on a computer. In the mid seventies, nineteen seventy-five. I can wow. yeah. it just started at CalArts because I certainly I wrote all this stuff down, mm -hmm. so my date is correct. And I also did work with Magi Synthavision uh, when I was working for Z for Xander. They did Tron. They were doing Tron at the time, so we're now into the late seventies or early eighties. Yeah. yeah, and their computers were there was a camera pointing down at a television screen and off in California you've got Jerry Reese and a couple of other of my classmates who are programming this thing and the lines are coming in one pixel at a time and I said how long does it take for each image to load sometimes up to 45 minutes wow. so it wasn't practical until computers became faster like the little computers my father built in the 70s and I did the Donald Duck and it had about I think 45 megabytes of storage. The one image I draw today has more than that entire computer could store on its three floppy disk drives. We're talking about immense leaps in technical ability. Whereas yeah. with drawing, we didn't have that problem. Mm. It was strictly a matter of the artist's skill. And if you want to make a, everything that a computer animated film can do can be done in live action. I'm sorry, or could be done in, sorry, Stop the live action, but I hate live action animated shorts. Anything animated on computer is based on something that was originally hand-drawn. Yes. It was done to make it easier for us to do it. So first it started with the ink and paint. Frankly, I hated cells. I made one film on cell and it was a mess and storing it was a disaster and expensive as hell. And my second film... Uh, it took eight weeks to make, done in one computer program, and the third one, three months with a crew of eight with faster computers and a much more elaborate project. Hell yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. As for playing with digital puppets, it's never really appealed to me, although I like to look at it. But it's totally technology dependent. And one thing I find bizarre is that people are always asking, well, what, what did you do this with? Now it's even drawing. Did you draw this with Procreate? Well, I don't tell you what kind of pencils I use on paper. And I, by the way, rarely draw on paper anymore. I've started again. 
Yeah. But I've been drawing digitally since 1997. So hand-drawn is also a digital tool, a digital art form now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about tablets and, and I mean, people have, uh, there, are, there are scholars certainly who are, who are practitioners who have tried to kind of reclaim the art of drawing within um, digital animation, the production of computer graphics, either either the fact that drawing is an integral part or part of the early stage of production of computer animated films, but also the role of drawing practically when, when animators and artists are using stylus and, and tablets and, and kind of drawing, but drawing digitally. So, and, and I know that there was a lot of anxiety, you said about the progress that animate digital animation on, and computers from 1972, which is Catmull's a computer animated hand, so a very short, 10 years later is Tron. So there's quite a lot has happened in that 10 years. But a lot of the anxieties around computer animated or the, the terminology computer animated versus computer generated is precisely the question of labor or the erasure of labor or the question of the automatic that computer animation is, is preferred because it the word animated gives it a sense of humanity, whereas computer generated seems to feel a lot more yeah, a lot more automatic, a lot more a lot more of a mechanical process. So it's interesting to hear your hear your thoughts on on this and the sort of yeah the the role of 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 drawing and and the image of the computer is just another pencil as you said you don't tell people the kinds of pencils that you use. Um, the computer does not do the animation. Yeah, and you still have to have a skilled person, skilled artist, manipulating CGI puppets. They are a puppet, and as they have become better at rigging them. The faces are more expressive. If you're seeing the same faces, that's that's not the fault of the computer. It's the fault of the person making yeah. that. They're directed to do a cliched piece of acting or a cliched movement and or reuse something, which is, by the way, nothing unusual. We reused animation and hand-drawn. What I would like to point out is we've been blending computer and hand-drawn for a very long time. And my first project where I did that was a show. Uh, uh, I was working for Warner Brothers. I was directing a show called Bugs Bunny's Lunar Tunes. And there's a sequence where Marvin the Martian is showing all these bad things Earthlings do about the Martians. And one of them was a video game, a caricature of Pac-Man with these green bird things that Chuck Jones designed, beautiful things. And Marvin is Pac-Man. Of course, he doesn't have a mouth, so he's just moving around. So I animated that digitally. I don't know how I did it. I think it was probably drawn on paper and scanned. And did other projects like that much later on. But I did my most recent film completely digitally. The last two films were completely digital, drawing everything on the computer. And it looks like hand-drawn. Yeah. yeah. I don't care as long as it works. And the films that are made today... There's a studio that is doing an excellent job integrating CGI and hand-drawn, and that is the Cartoon Saloon in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I've seen all their films. The most impressive, I feel, from, from an artistic point of view, they're all beautiful, but I loved Wolfwalkers. Yeah. You have seen the film. The wolf sees through its nose, and there are remarkable sequences in what are called wolf vision, which they blocked in in CGI and then drew the wolf characters over that and animated the digital scent as characters animate from scent. 
what I liked about it as well as Wolf Walkers, you could plainly see construction lines on some of the characters. If you don't know what that is, when you're drawing on paper, you have to keep the volumes consistent. A digital character has the opposite problem. If it's a CGI character, you have to learn how to distort the volumes to create the feeling of weight. Mm-hmm. Whereas with hand-drawn, you have to try and control them so that it doesn't suddenly morph or grow and shrink. It's very easy to distort. Mm-hmm. So the computer rigs had to be redesigned over the years. Let's, they now use something called broken rigs. And I taught at a school, which is very lucky to have a teacher who knew how to do it as far back as 2006. They're that recent. They were only used in feature films before that. And we got it in our, in our uh, college. And one of the students did six rigs. He rigged six films and is now at Disney as a professional rigger. So it, there's, there's is the technological problems. The artist really is the one still responsible for the performance. Mm-hmm. So when they say computer generated, I don't believe there is such a thing. Yeah, yeah. For listeners' benefit, Chris is absolutely gushing at that answer. This is exactly up his alley at Nancy. So, yeah, thank you so much. I'm slightly aware, and I knew this was going to happen. We've got so much to cover that we could just stay in the, we could stay in the 70s and I'd have a lovely time. But we'd better, we better try and get through um, some really important milestones in your career, Nancy. So... Let's 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 move into the 80s, and I guess you're sort of you're slightly you're you're out of you're out of um of training, and you're and you're doing. Um, and I guess we're we're a big fan of impact on this podcast. We're trying to we're trying to do some research that makes some difference. So I wonder if we could clear up some IMDb Wikipedia problems because there's a there's a whole lot of stuff out there attributed to you. Um, and and I wondered if perhaps if we could do a quick fire sort of round now and and clear up what you were doing as a, in the as a 80s. new feature of the show. Yeah, a new feature. So I've got in 1983, you've got. You did you did a short film called Your Feet's Too Big? Is this correct or not correct? Certainly did. In fact, the IMDb is now completely accurate. Okay, what's that? Was that a short you made out of college, or uh, who was that? I made I made it at uh, Jack Zander's studio, and okay. I made it to show that I could direct. And I got the rights to use the song theatrically and on television broadcast and so on and actually met Fats Waller's son, Maurice, because RCA Records said, if he doesn't like it, we don't either. And he was a delightful, dear man who was, who was, said he was, he said the film was in good taste. He was relieved because I was terrified. Okay. You mentioned in one of your answers, you worked with Bakshi briefly. Is that so? So tell us about that. Well, when I was a junior, this would be a third year, I worked with bunch of uh, other Cal Arts kids in the summer of, uh, I think it was 1978, on The Lord of the Rings for Ralph Becker. And Ralph was an equal opportunity employer. He hired everybody. That was fantastic. And I ran into Brenda Banks again there. (laughs) And I didn't actually see her. I heard this giggling coming from behind a booth. And I said, who's that? Well, that's Brenda Banks. Oh, well, I didn't dare talk to her, you see, because I was only, uh, I was hired as an in-betweener, but I wound up doing some animation on the picture. But the point is, you did not talk to the animators there. You had some famous ones like Herb Spence, who was like God on that project. I never said it. I went in the elevator with him once. I didn't dare open my mouth. 
But I did meet Tex Avery when I was on that job, and he was a very nice man to talk to. But he wasn't working for Bakshi. This was uh, an interview I did. So Ralph Bakshi let me animate the wargs. Wow. Characters. Because mm-hmm. you see, he's shooting rotoscope for the picture. Yeah. And, well, if you have a nice German shepherd running across a field and jumping into his trainer's arms, that's not very... <laughs> it's a very warg-like. I did a drawing of a wolf with six-inch teeth ripping out a guy's throat. And I showed I like it to Ralph. Yeah, he goes, yeah, yeah, just give him bigger teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you got the wards, you got the wards. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. That's Ralph. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Student, I think students love Bakshi. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, my favorite is American pop, and I, any opportunity to show students American pop, I'm, I, I, I try to do so. But I think there's something, especially thinking through the, na- the, the notion of sort of studio production versus independent. I know Alex has written on this sort of ca- the countercultural nature or the countercultural element of Bakshi, and it's really kind of refreshing to hear, um, as you say, he was a, an equal, Im- uh, equal opportunities employer. Um, Especially given Brenda Banks's, I guess you know, was one of the first African Americans to kind of work, black artists to work in. in the... No, no, there, there were others. She was the first woman. Right, right, right. But Ralph had a number of black animators working on his films. I met Leonard Robinson. That we called him Big Daddy, and there were others. And again, Ralph hired whoever he he liked who could draw. Yeah. And Ralph also, I, I grew up watching the Mighty Heroes which Ralph did for television. They were hilariously funny things. His might and his Mighty Mouse TV show, which I would have loved to have worked on. I was in hysterics over that. Ralph does really good parodies. And that might have been his true métier. I don't know, but I think he did pretty well for what he did. Mm. I really enjoyed the Mighty Heroes. If you haven't seen them, it's ridiculous superheroes. It was done in 1965. He also animated the first Spider-Man cartoon. Uh So he was doing some pretty remarkable things uh in new you know actually uh at the very beginning not just at the theatrical stuff okay. so ralph hired a lot of us from cal arts to work at and it was a summer job it was a nice one mm-hmm. the only summer job i had in an animation studio and because i usually worked with my father in the summer um repairing musical instruments had to help out had to help out that year i did not so then you moved on, and, and then we're, now we're starting to get into sort of late, uh, mid-90s, and you're working in the Disney studio. So why don't you tell us how that uh, came about? Well, I first came on to the Goofy movie. Yes. She's a favourite of mine, actually. I yeah, mean, we yeah. did a whole episode about that, but yeah. I saw it again recently after decades of not looking at it, and I ran it for someone who'd never seen it before. And I was shocked at how good... <laughs> this picture was it was called the no i'm not saying it wasn't good but i saw it when i looked at the boards i was doing i looked at the script i, I boarded a sequence with max uh, uh talking to roxanne at the end of the picture but i animated a lot of them earlier this is the one i boarded i took a look at the script because this is this is a great script it's a beautiful script mm-hmm. and it was known as the little movie that could because they didn't advertise it and just went on and made bags of money and people mm. it's still very well loved and they they got me on it because they knew that i would be very happy to travel and live abroad for a while didn't have any family or any responsibilities other than to myself at the time no cats <laughs> so i and a few other crew members were sent over uh spent about a year in paris working on it and it's 
also after I'd worked in Germany. I, I you, you forgot all about Gerhard Hahn. I went over there in the 80s. And again, he was an equal opportunity employer. Very important. Because New York was dying at the time. And I didn't want to go. I didn't like living in California. So Germany sounded like an interesting thing. And the project sounded like fun. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was so there was animation production in Germany, some great animators in Germany, but there was no old boys network. So I was able to do whatever the guys did and nobody gave me favors or did anything else, but I was basically yeah. treated like an ordinary, you know, like you're an animator, you're not a woman animator, a girl. Mm-hmm. And you were TV and film as well at this point. Cause a lot of about half my work. Yeah. But some of those were, were better than the features being done at the time. I will say that quite plainly. Yeah. yeah. There was more creativity in some of the TV shows, TV specials. I never worked on series television, except as a few storyboards for uh, DuckTales. Right, right. right. But I never, I've usually worked on what the now extinct television specials. And those were fun. And so a lot were for Disney. I did stuff for Epcot, which I had a ball animating Donald Duck. And one of them just turned up online, but I can't find the others. And, you know, it was fun. I got to work for Disney and... I did a lot of stuff for Disney television, all from New yeah. York. I and Dan Haskett were, I think, the first two animators to work remotely. We would ship our scenes on paper out to California. He was the first. And I said, do you think I could do that too? Sure. So, yeah, it was a thing then, but not yeah. by many people. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to, to ask you is about your um, job titles and kind of the things that, that crop up from your IMDb page. Um you often listed as as animator, but then, what what does supervising animator as a as a job title entail? Because I, I don't know. There's and you're credited elsewhere as a timing director or a character designer. So what's the difference between those kinds of those sorts of things? Because I think we just think of animation as a this sort of homogenous, or or certain people would think of the animation process as this mystified set of things that happens and, and and a cartoon is spat out at the end but there are lots of the way that you've talked about layout and background and character and timing and rigging and all these different things so i'd be interested to know what a supervising animator does versus uh, a timing director for example all right a supervising animator designs the character done <laughs> easy easy that, that was that was the way now i supervised miss kitty I did not design her. That was Uli Meyer, but I modified her design right? because of her dialogue. She talks a lot and she was unassigned. So I went to the producer and said, do you think I could have her? Sure. Nobody else wants her. And I went to Uli and I said, can I redesign her costume? He said, do anything you like. So I put a big feather on her head and a big tail was held up like a bustle. Originally she had, she had the uh, street outfit that Uli designed, which is worn in another sequence. But the reason I did this is that she's so, her dialogue is so uh, unfocused. I figured here's someone who doesn't pay attention to anything she's doing. Mm. So she can now hit people with the feather and hit them with her tail. And she does both to Catterwall in the sequence that I animated where he's brought Tanya in and 30 foot scene. Mr. Spielberg wanted staging like a live action film. So we have very long takes, very long shots. And that was a very nice scene. And I had a lot of fun using the props. That is what you do when you have a heavy dialogue scene. You give them a prop. And that's the way I've always taught my students. 
Okay, getting back to what supervising animators do, on a computer-generated film, you'll still have supervising animators, but now instead of having one to a character, you'll see there are very few of them. They'll handle maybe six characters. And what they will do is they will animate important scenes on these characters and send them out to the other animators who will see this is how the character acts, this is how they respond. Mm-hmm. Now, I've never done that on a CGI film. I'm not the right person to ask, but that is, I see very few supervisors now, so that is how I presume it's done. In the very early Disney films, they had sequence animators. There was no one supervisor, for example, on the Bambi or Pinocchio characters that were cast by sequence. More recently, it was, I'm the three fates, Nick Ranieri is Hades. We work together discussing what the characters are going to do. Yeah, That was, again, the hand-drawn. Things have changed a lot with CGI. Now, a regular animator, you're working, either they don't have supervisors, like you're animating Snoopy, That was actually funny because Bill Melendez gave me the best credit I've ever had. He didn't credit animators at all. He credits us as graphic blandishment. (laughs) I was that was my follow-up question, given that that is also one of your credits. Yeah, that is Bill Melendez. And if you look at anybody's credits who worked for Bill, they're all graphic blandishment. Okay, okay. Timing director. Yes, yes, yes. That's for television. And sometimes for features, but what you do is you are, again, the way I did it for something like uh, the Tigger movie, I never met the director. I was working with a sequence director. It was Leonard Robinson, whom I met at Bexies. I have exposure sheets. I have a stopwatch. I have the track. I am drawing on the exposure sheet little signs like, I want this to happen. I want that to happen. This is what the face is going to be here. And you're drawing it actually physically on an exposure sheet that goes to an animator who may not even be in the country. Now, when working in France, I did a different version of that. My French unit spoke English. The trouble was the track breakdowns were with English phonetics. So I was sent over to try and improve that. They were getting bad sync. And I found out, again, I have very no French. The French do not have the th sound in French. There's no TH in French. So they were animating Z, different mouth shape. Yeah. So I first asked, can we get French, a French editor to break down this track? No, we can't. I went to my crew. I said, do you, can you read English? If it's not phonetic? Yes, we can. So I copied out the correct English alongside every single one of those track breakdowns. And then whenever there was a TH, I drew a tongue and a teeth. On the exposure, yeah. we had perfect sync ever since on my unit, and we got you know that was a big challenge because when you're working in another country, you have to sort of meet them halfway. Mm. Filming yourself is not the answer. That's why I've never done it. Yeah, I definitely feel like in the digital era, animators don't own characters in the same way. Um, I've I've listened to a few kind of talks by computer animators and, and some of the, the extra textual material and they talk about animating shots and you mentioned this earlier that, that oh, there's, a, there's a sense in which animators work on particular shots. Some characters might be prioritised by certain animators but I, I definitely feel like animators don't in the digital era don't own or, own, own or have that kind of autonomy over a character in the way that you've described in some of your own work where you can change a character and supervise a particular character. I, I feel like there's mm. The digital has sort of, because there's a wealth of people working on these movies, and it's not about way... it's not about the the technology per se. It's about how the work is distributed. Yeah, yeah, yeah the late structure. Yeah. Always, it was always done by groups of people. 
Now, if you look at the original Toy Story, it's very obvious that different characters are done by different people. I believe Pete Doctor animated Buzz Lightyear is very distinctive. Yeah. And some of the others were given to less experienced animators, which is okay because an animated picture is always greater than the sum of its parts. And they were doing that for the first time. So there's bound to be some animation that, you know, okay, you've got a character that doesn't have to move as much, like a piggy bag. You give that to the animator who's still learning. That's fine. I feel that it really depends on the studio as well. But I do find it more difficult now to identify a scene by, I, I usually be able to say, oh, so-and-so animated that. Hmm. That's, a, that's a party trick. <laughs> oh, no, it's, we, we know. They know my scenes because the eyes. All right. I just saw, I must confess, not all of it, the Warner Brothers, um, the latest feature they did, Space Jam. Oh, Space oh, yes. Jam, yeah, New Legacy, yeah. Well, there's some gorgeous gorgeous character animation and i said i know that's dan haskins i know i know his style a mile away the hand drawn you can easily tell when you get to the digital it was not possible because number one i don't know that many of the animators but also it's more homogenous yeah kind of programmed i suppose that's, that's well, no, no no it's not programmed it's that the i'll tell you why each one of us draws a character slightly differently now i'm famous for being on model but I will draw them, I'm told, differently than so-and-so so sitting next to me. It's just the way it is. Good assistant can pull them back together. But the acting is still mine. When you have, remember, a hand-drawn character, you have to work to keep it on model. When you have a digital character, it is always on model. That is why you can't tell the difference. There's, there's, there's great animation on these characters, but you can't tell because the animator no longer influences the appearance of the character. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. that. So it's not a fault. It's not an advantage. It's not a fault. It's an advantage from, from some points of view. You don't have to worry about putting a character back on model, which we always had to do when we got, particularly in television, stuff that wasn't the way the character is supposed to look. You have a position that's still known as storyboard corrections, but there, there also were pencil corrections for years done on hand-drawn shows. And with a digital show, you don't have that. So, but it's not a fault. It's not, it is a distinct advantage from a point of view of recognizability of the character, but it makes it less likely that you're going to recognize who animated it. Yeah. Oh, we have to ask one more question about your career because if I don't, I'll, I'll beat myself <laughs> up <after> the next <laughs> week because we haven't talked about Treasure Planet yet. And it was sort of one of the reasons we started talking with you. We're big fans of the, of the film on the, um, on the podcast. So you, you did the character Billy Bones in that, right? Um, uh, you super supervise that character. So, I mean, we are running out of time, and I, uh, but we'd, we'd love to hear just a few thoughts on, on that experience and, and what you brought to the character of Billy Bones, because I know you've got some, some great stories surrounding that. I will tell you, uh, the, project, the pre project had, I think, more pre-production character design artwork than any other film I'd ever seen. I think there were 15,000 pieces of artwork done for the look of the picture. But the directors gave me Billy Bones. They knew where I wanted, they wanted the direction to follow Harold Sieperman's drawings. And he was a brilliant German designer who sadly left us much too soon. But Sieperman had originally drawn it for John Silver. And it was a, standing on its hind legs and it was, they wanted a turtle. I said, well, turtles don't usually stand on their hind legs. <laughs> like you saw it usually there. Yeah. <laughs> well, why not blend it with several other creatures? So I found these 
exhibit of Chinese dinosaurs that no one had ever seen. It was in Los Angeles. I went to see it. I drew some of the bones. I went and the crew of dinosaur was working. I managed to buy a maquette of a triceratops from the sculptor. And I sculpted a bust of Billy Bones' head because he's got two jaw, two jaw joints. I made it partly on a sockeye salmon, partly on the tortoise that they wanted and partly on the dinosaur that I found. And the hands are actually the turtle's hind legs. So it's not a human at all. And he's not going to stand upright. So that means I had to go to layout and say, look, uh, this thing has the turning radius of my car. <laughs> more horizontal layouts. You do it then. So there's my layout training coming in. I blocked those camera moves where he's picking up. The first scene I did was he's picking up a CGI chest and putting it on his shoulder. Because they're after me chests. They're thieving cyborg. And that was Patrick McGowan. Mm-hmm whom I met and we became friends. Oh man, God, was that man brilliant. He was a, one of the most impressive actors I ever met and probably one of the brightest. He'd been a producer. He told me he didn't even like acting. And I didn't know at the time that he liked Disney. He'd made in all kinds of Disney projects. And that was his last one. But he did mm. a great track, great soundtrack. Mm. And when I did that scene with Bones toppling over, I didn't act it out because I can't. I'm not a... Seven foot long dinosaur. I simply did the thumbnails, which are in animated performance, by the way, and animated this drunken sailor walk on him, like he's on his guy's got his sea legs. He's on land. He's there. He's got that rolling sailor's walk. So I studied a lot of things that weren't me, and that got the performance. That's again. Lots of follow-up questions. It's the blending, the blending of sources that yeah, I've been writing so down. Good. The way that you're, yeah, again, striking this bargain with lots of different. It needs to move like this, but has the volume of this, but also the volume of this, and and that assimilation of different sources as part of your acting process, essentially, as you build this into the character. Yeah. I think that's a really and and important. you know, for students listening, I'll say it before I'll say it again. You know, context, knowledge, being interested, being inquisitive, doing research, looking at things. These are all part of the creative process. They're not antagonistic to it. You just said it, looking at things, things. Too many people look at other animated films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I taught taught an animation summer class at Sheridan. And I said, I'm not going to show you animation. I don't want you to look at animated films. I want you to look at your, say, this character, which is a totally sexless, it's a genderless character. You're going to turn it into a dog that you can't redesign it. You can only make the legs shorter, have it walk on all fours. You cannot give it ears. I allowed one student to give it a tail. Okay. You have to make a human act like the dog or the dog act like the human, but it cannot be designed that way. And that's how you learn how to work directly from what's in here, what's in your head. Yeah. Translated through thumbnails. So I hate to plug my own book, but that's why I wrote it. Animated performance does contain some of the student exercises as well. Mm. And things like a do a dance routine between a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste. My favorites include things like a dual, uh, a whale and a squid, but the whale is a stapler and the squid is a roll of tape. Mm. Then there was a girl who did a pole dance, a pole dancer who is a straw. And the audience member is a can of Coke, a Coca-Cola. Is it 
is it right that you've not? Because when you're talking, I'm thinking about the the early use of digital digital animation in adverts, and and you mentioned Chris Chris Wedge earlier, and uh, the start that Blue Sky Studios had doing advertisements. Pixar did the same thing, and and a lot of that was casting an object in a role and trying to turn a drinking straw or trying to gender drinking straws and things like this, and and it reminded me of of that. That's because they couldn't do soft fur. That that comes in the Pixar short films where they're experimenting with each one. Each one was trying out a new technique, fur, feathers. Yeah. It was all designed to help develop their technology while making a little entertaining film, which won a lot of Oscars. As for, yeah. as for Chris Wedge, he had a very different look to his films and he had great fur in his, I think the first one that I, first CGI film and the only one that I cry at is, is Bunny. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It is a heartbreaking film. It is a beautiful film. And it's got a totally different t- style of lighting, texturing, and of course, fur. And it still looks good. I think, what is it now? 1990. It's, it's a, it still looks good all these years later. Yeah. And it's a brilliant film. Brilliant film. So it's all about the storytelling, really. And yeah. the medium is secondary. If you don't have something to say, you're just moving around things on the screen. I might tell my students that if you don't have anything, look at things, and if you don't have anything to say, you're just moving things around. I but I tell, a... I tell students, <laughs> I, myself, you look at life. And yeah. Brad Bird had a great quote. He said, it's difficult to create the illusion of life when you don't have one. <laughs> That's a <laughs> wonderful quote, Brad. Yeah. And we were all taught the same way. Instead of looking at other animated films, which is fine, which can do it, go out and draw. I draw my cats. Go out and draw your relatives. I said here here is a character you've done a little kid okay that's boring do you have any sisters or brothers yes okay that's your sister suddenly it turns into a totally unique character because you're the only one who knows i don't know your sister you do mm-hmm. you were basing it on your own experience and one of my students who took that too hard was that you know walt disney took european tales and saw them through an american eye the seven dwarves become individuals, which that could only have been done in the U.S., which stresses individuals. Before that, there's just seven women. So why can't you do the opposite? Take it, take it, take an American or an European story and see it through your eyes. And my student Domi, she did that very thing. She made a film called Bow for Pixar, mm-hmm. which is the gingerbread man seen through Chinese eyes. Watch it right. again. See, it is the gingerbread man. Amazing. Yeah. With a hell of a twist ending yeah. based on her own experience, which nobody else could do for her. That's what makes it so good. So you see, it has to be the technology isn't going to save you. It isn't going to save any picture. I've seen gorgeous films which were vacant you know, brain candy that melts in your brain as soon as you're done. <laughs> That's fine. I have nothing against brain candy. I do think, though, if you are trying to make a personal film, and it really should be personal, it should be something you have done, not something you're copying. And now AI is in the act. I have all my artist friends are saying, God, we're scared. One of my friends is taking potatoes (laughs) and asking them to be painted in the style of various artists. They're hilarious. But the thing is, a good artist can take this and use it, but an AI painting just won a painting contest, which I think is obscene. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah I saw that. that. And it's basically just regurgitating something that's already out there. So for animation, that may be next, I don't know. But if your standard is low 
and it's only going to be reality. It's not going to be anything imaginative. Then that's perfectly okay for you. Uh, Kai Pindle, great Danish animator, said, "Doing realistic animation is like getting a, a rocket ship and driving it around the parking lot." Yeah, because you're not using. You said the kind of the 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 adherence to live action is something that. And again, kind of trying to, to say to students that you're pushing against the what you're, you're again, you're striking a creative bargain with the real and actually to, to move towards reality or to move towards live action cinema is almost, as you say, kind of doing a disservice to what the medium can do, the affordances that it can do and, and all that kind of stuff. The fantastical nature of it. In live action films, the, they still have stuntmen, but quite a few stunts are now done. Yeah. But and mocap is used for fantasy films. There's perfectly good applications for it. But when you have a film that says it's animated and mm -hmm. it's doing its best to look like live action, I feel animation is the superior medium. And that by imitating live action, it's actually doing a disservice. You could be doing much better than that. Yeah. That's just me. Okay. I'm sorry. No. The opinions do not reflect that of the management. <laughs> no, no, we'll put no. But we've up. we've we've loved hearing them and everything else, Nancy. I mean, I, I if I weren't so British and polite, I'd corner you for even longer. <laughs> You're time. welcome to talk just... to me on your own if you wanna. I <laughs> we, we, we we might just take you up on that. Yeah, uh, part two. You know, listeners, we're taking this off air. Um, it really, I mean, I don't know how to summarise what that was. That was an incredible discussion of of all kinds of things, from insight into the early days of of Cal Arts and and lots of sort of fun gossip along the way but also just to hear your thoughts on on kind of the, the medium itself was it was really wonderful to hear so just if listeners memories are short we must remember of course you've got the two books out if people are wanting to to make some purchases so we've mentioned the animated performance book um that's i mean I've, i haven't read that for a while but it reminded me of how many interesting insights there are in that so please do do check that out and if you've got your new book um how i finally got to live a cat's life um which uh, your lockdown sketches and, and cartoons um, i was also prepared a board which was my book on storyboarding it's still the only one to include character design and sadly, that may change simply because in CGI, your characters might still be, for features, designed at the same time as the storyboard. But that is not true of television. So check that out as well, everyone. Yeah. And please do, because it's a, it's a wonderful contribution and, and to a wonderful career. Um, Nancy, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for asking me. I'm very... Um, and thank we... you again for everything. No, thank it's really nice. And, and, um, we will let you go. To carry on the conversations that we've started on this podcast, as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fan and in Research. F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. I mean, there's so much you could talk about, so much to let us know about. Uh, and if anyone out there is doing research on any of the topics covered today and has more to add, do get in touch. And you can do that at fancy-animation.org. Um, click on the Contact Us tab. There's also a blog and podcast archive to access while you're there. You can also email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com. F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Maybe you have nothing to contribute. Do you want us to talk for another 10 minutes about something else that we've said there? Footnote. Footnote. Let us know. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, always open for suggestions. And um, you guys have been great sending them so far. Um, otherwise, that's been us for another episode. We'll see you next time. Bye.